welcome to the Victorian Aboriginal News Referendum 23 Tapes podcast. I'm your host, Charles Parkiner. Victorian Aboriginal News acknowledges and pays respect to traditional owners and custodians across Australia. We acknowledge the elders who have gone before, those who currently lead their communities and those who will follow in years and generations to come. As we've mentioned previously, on the 23rd of March this year, the Prime Minister announced the proposed question for this year's referendum, along with the proposed amendments to be made to the Constitution should the referendum receive a yes from the Australian electorate. To shed some much-needed light on the question and proposed amendments, we're joined today once again by Professor Cheryl Saunders from Melbourne Law School. Professor, thanks for speaking with me again today. It's a pleasure. Let's start with the question, which, as it currently stands, bearing in mind that it has yet to be approved by both Houses of Parliament, reads as follows. A proposed law to alter the Constitution to recognise the First Peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve this proposed alteration? Now, Professor, some say that it's vague, Yet in contrast to some referendum questions, it's not nearly as vague as it could be or as some have been. But in reality, is it a vague question? And if so, why is that the case? Look, Charles, can we just make clear what the question actually is? Sure. Um, What you've just quoted is certainly what we'll all see when we turn up to vote. But in technical terms, it's the title of the Act. Right. That the, that the act that will authorise the change to the Constitution. What we will actually be voting for on is the change to the Constitution itself. And that's set out in the body of the act. Right. Uh, and it's much more straightforward and much less vague. I mean, the, the question is deliberately vague just to get you to understand that this is a referendum on the voice rather than a referendum on something else. But the actual text which I think your listeners need to get access to at some stage. Yeah. And, they, and everybody will get a pamphlet with it in, by the way. Uh, the actual text is much more focused, much more to the point. And it is relatively short. People may think that it's going to be a huge thing. There's actually just a, a, a one sentence followed by three subsections or three sentences in itself. It is pretty straightforward and, as you say, relatively short. And we will have that up on our website for anybody who would like to have a look at that uh, on the same page as this interview will be on. Now, let's have a look at the proposed constitutional change. The first sentence is interesting because it also brings in that First Nations recognition part. And it says, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the first peoples of Australia... What's the real significance of that particular sentence? Well, it's a very interesting sentence, isn't it? It introduces the whole amendment, tells you what it's all about, why it matters. Uh, But for me, it does two things. One, it literally provides constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, which you you remember is where this all started. Of course. But in addition, it recognises them as... The First Peoples of Australia. Now, this is something that people have been crying out for for decades. Well, and I think it also explains to all of us why this matters. Why recognise the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? Well, because 
they are the first peoples of Australia. They sure. are deeply embedded in our history and our country and our life. So have you seen much in the legal or political spectrums that has had any sort of negative say on that particular part of the amendments? Oh, look, I mean, there's a lot of sort of funny stuff lying around. <laughs> there is. Um, and so I've seen some, I think, pretty far, well, very far-fetched suggestions that maybe some sort of implication could be drawn from those words, but I think not. I mean, they're pretty straightforward. What sort of implications, though? Oh. Uh, that we well, weren't the first well, peoples well, here? Well, what, well, exactly. What follows from being first peoples? Now, you, you might say, well, quite a lot of things should follow from being first peoples. But even leaving that aside, this is the way in which this section is cast. I think it's cast in quite a dignified way. Mm. It's written very clearly, but it's a statement of recognition. It's not an active statement in any other way. Now, all sides of politics seem to be okay with that. And it's only really when we get to the second paragraph of those three paragraphs I mentioned that we have a problem, and we'll get to that in a minute. Now, the first paragraph that follows right after that sentence we just read seems to me to be incredibly straightforward. There mm -hmm. shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Fairly innocent, would you agree? Well, I think innocent, of course, but, imp <laughs> but important because what it does is it gives the voice a base, if you like, in mm. the Constitution. Of course, there will need to be more done to actually set the voice up. That section can't set it up by itself, but it tells you that this is a body with a base in the Constitution. And I think that's important for at least two reasons. One, it provides some protection for the voice. But equally importantly, the Constitution is our fundamental law and changes need to be approved by the people of Australia directly. And we discussed so, this in so, quite some detail in episode two of our podcast several months ago. Yes, so by putting it in the Constitution, it gets the imprimatur of the Australian people, if that's what happens towards the end of the year. Sure. And that seems very appropriate for constitutional recognition. Section two, or the second uh, paragraph. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. My mm -hmm. goodness, everybody's had fun with this particular sentence, haven't they? They have. Now, the Executive Government, can you just define for us what is the Executive Government? Because in my mind, it's the Ministers and their departments, or the senior representatives, the secretaries of various departments. Is that fairly accurate? Well, that's at the heart of the executive government, clearly. Mm. But the executive government of all the many institutions that implement and execute the laws of the Commonwealth. So certainly one would expect the representations to go to sort of senior actors, people who've actually got power to influence things. But the executive, the notion of executive government is reasonably wide-ranging. That's not scary. There's mm. a very interesting suggestion that was made in the parliamentary hearings the other day that in practice, the voice is likely to be given a single member of the executive to whom to deliver its representations, if you like, and then that becomes that person, probably a minister's, responsibility to farm them out to the relevant parts of the organisation. 
I would expect other advisory bodies work that way and I would expect this one to be exactly the same. So that would be equivalent to a liaison officer between a department and the voice? Well, yes, maybe a liaison officer, but maybe, I mean, it might be the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, it might be the Attorney-General, it might be the Prime Minister himself or herself would be the person who receives the representation in the first instance mm. and then says, oh, this is relevant to the environment. We'll send it on to the environment minister or it's relevant to someone else. And so th we've got to think about how this voice works in practice. And I think, uh, you know, as soon as you start doing that, it becomes a much more straightforward exercise. And this will, of course, all be discussed and detailed in subsequent legislation. We've discussed that before as well. But let's get to the next part of that same sentence on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Now, certain mm -hmm. commentators and politicians have thrown up their arms in absolute despair saying, yes, but, but everything, whether it's AUKUS or whether it's social security or bus timetables, it all relates to First Peoples. Can we shed some light on that? Yes, I think we can, actually, in two ways. One is those words relating to mean something. Mm. Uh, it's not a power to make representations about anything you like. It's a power to make representations on those matters. And those will be pretty broad-ranging. But I think that in understanding those words relating to, yeah. you need to say... This matter needs to have some distinctive significance for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It needs to have an effect on them that's distinctive from the rest of the population. So that's one way of thinking about those words. But the other way of thinking about it is this. I mean, who's going to actually interpret those words? It's most unlikely that something is going to reach any court to ask the court to interpret those words. Maybe that will happen in time. But the people in the first instance who will need to give some substance to those words mm. are, first of all, the voice, and secondly, the people in government or parliament receiving representations from the voice. And for the voice, it will need to be discriminating about the matters it tackles. So there's no reason to expect the voice won't tackle things that really matter to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Sure. And the recipients, the ministers or the public servants or whoever they are, uh, will also be more likely to respond to representations that deal with something that really is distinctive to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on which the voice can throw some light. Let's get to the third section. And I, from my perspective, I see this section as one which really throws away so many arguments from so many commentators and politicians who are saying, yeah, but the voice is going to be this all-powerful body that can do pretty well anything. Because I can't imagine any government, any parliament giving away its essential power to any advisory body or consultative body. And it says the parliament shall subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to matters relating to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, including its composition, functions, powers and procedures. Now, am I right in assuming that this particular paragraph just says, look, we're not throwing away total control? <laughs> in a way, yes. Look, it does, it does a couple of things. One... Um you're right, it's a very broad power for the parliament. 
but importantly, it empowers the parliament to set the voice up. Yeah. To pass an act that talks about the composition of the voice and the way in which it functions, some of the things that you and I have just been talking about. But it also, and you're right, is broad because it's supposed to give some comfort to people who are concerned that the voice might raise a whole lot of matters in the courts, mm. that the power enables the parliament to specify the extent of the legal effect of voice representation. So it actually deals with the issue of uh, the relationship between the voice and courts. Now, I can only assume, and we have reached the end of our time, unfortunately, and that's gone very quickly, that as a result of this particular interview, there will be an incredible number of questions that will arise from our audience and we will need to be in contact with you again. Before we let you go, when do we expect that the question and the proposed amendments will make their way through both Houses of Parliament? Well, the legislation is presently before a parliamentary committee. Mm -hmm. That committee is due to report by the 15th of May. And when that happens, the bill will then start being debated by the two Houses of Parliament, I think first in the House of Representatives, then in the Senate. We don't have a fixed date for when that process will be over, but the Parliament rises, I think, at the end of the second week in June for right. the winter recess. So I think we can assume that it will be through the Parliament by then. Let's hope so. Well, Professor Saunders, I want to thank you once again for your patience and your clarity because it does get confusing even these small little bits and pieces really tend to confuse so many Look, it, it does i know and the terminology is different and all that stuff so please feel very free to come back anytime we will certainly be doing that thanks once again for your time professor okay pleasure bye until our next episode stay safe and stay informed <laughs>